in my case, there's no question. The conclusion of the evening was there's no way to retire if you don't invest. You can't possibly save your way to retirement. You have to invest to boost your, your returns. From Vetex International, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by not one, but two awesome guests as we take on the towering elephant in the room of veterinary medicine, money. More specifically, debt. To dissect this huge issue, we have a two-for-one deal where I'm joined by vets and financial experts, Dr. Meredith Jones and Dr. Phil Zeltzman. Meredith is an ER doctor from Virginia, host of the Debt Free Vets Facebook group, and was able to pay off her entire student debt in less than five years after graduation. She now uses the knowledge she acquired in the process, plus the huge amount of financial training she's undertaken since to help other vets follow the same path. Phil is a multi-time business owner, investor, and board-certified traveling surgeon, helping clinics in his home state offer advanced surgical care without the need for referral. He's also a published author with two books available on Amazon and happens to be one of the best storytellers in the veterinary business. Now, rather wonderfully, both of these amazing people have teamed up and are on a mission to teach vets how to escape from the burden of the amassed student debt they now carry and have created the Veterinary Financial Summit, which will hold its inaugural event in September 2020. Now, just before we jump into the episode, a very quick word from today's show sponsor, the Verex Thrive community. If you're working in practice and clients or colleagues are making you miserable, I have mixed news. The bad news first is that you're probably the source of your problems. The good news is that therefore you are also 100% in control of changing things and having a great career. You are missing some skills and they are not clinical. Enter Verex Thrive, a race accredited non-clinical skills course and community where members get training, toolkits and mentoring to support the development of these crucial skills. Membership is available for a small monthly fee where you can join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better. To learn more, and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash thrive today. Now, back to the show. Debt is one of the biggest causes of stress and it's hard to imagine how the added pressure this has placed onto the shoulders of the next generation of vets is helping anyone to cope. Phil and Meredith have great career stories, yet different perspectives to share on the issue. If money is on your mind, you're going to get huge value from this episode. So I invite you to put your feet up and invest some time and enjoy this my oceanically distanced conversation with the exceptional doctors Meredith Jones and Phil Zeltzman. Welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. This is a bit of a funny one, actually, because I'm joined by two wonderful guests today, and you're going to get an enormous amount of listening joy out of this. I'm, I'm absolutely certain, but it's like a part. It's like a part two or a or a rerun of a previous edition that we were going to bring so i'm going to introduce a guest so we've got dr meredith jones super happy to have you back on the show so welcome to the podcast thank you and we did this round before and we didn't uh, we did use it but we didn't get it to air on the show and as we were about to bring it to air on the show you were like dude don't put that out there i've got so much more stuff to bring to the table and by stuff, I didn't realize one of the things you meant was having the incredibly talented and, and funny Dr. Phil Zeltzman. So Phil, welcome to Blunt Dissection. This is so good to have you on. 
Thank you so much. I think we set the scene briefly for this episode. So we're doing this during COVID, and so we're on a Zoom call, which is always just totally weird. And we're just coming out. It's uh, as of recording. So it's the start of July. The world is trying hard to unlock from COVID and doing so with varying degrees of success and come to terms with the financial and health carnage that has ensued. And what better time actually to engage in this discussion. So Phil and Meredith are both veterinarians, both extremely, extremely talented in what they do. And one of the things that they do, and they've taken a much deeper dive into, is the world of money. And really a, a world that is very poorly understood by most people, but particularly in veterinary medicine, it's just something we've never focused on. So I'm going to kick off and actually ask you guys to just give us a little bit of a backstory. So Meredith, uh, you came to my attention because you were out there and I came, first came across you because of the Facebook group you started, the, the Debt-Free Veterinarians. And you had paid off your student debt, which was a six-figure debt across in the US, within four years of graduation, which I thought was pretty good because I could barely afford to buy beer and curry after graduation. So kudos to you on that. Give us some background, Meredith. Like, Where did all this interest in money start for you? And, and yeah, give us the backstory. Sure. So I think the earliest time that I really developed or started to develop an interest in money was back in undergrad. I actually took a course because NC State required you to take, in order to get into vet school, required you to take some sort of business course. And one of the courses we could take was personal finance class. And so I had this, uh, what I thought at the time was a sort of crazy professor because he had about six or eight different jobs and uh, had all these projects going on. And it ended up being the most interesting course that I took that entire semester. And I learned a heck of a lot. So fast forward to vet school, because pretty much the rest of undergrad was focused on getting into vet school. Then I came out of school with about 120000 in debt. And so that was mostly vet student debt, vet school debt, and then a little bit of consumer debt as well. And I graduated in 2008 when the tuition was a bit lower. And so certainly now people are coming out with uh, 185000 on average in the US if they have debt at all. And so not as much as before. And so you said you said within four years of graduation, it actually was within six years of graduation because I did an internship. And so my loans were in forbearance that year. And so but it was within three and a half years once I got serious about it. And so I paid off a, a large amount of debt in a short period of time. And then after that, I decided to take a financial coaching course. And so that was in 2016, which is the same year that the Fix the Debt Summit happened and the same year that there were a lot of articles and a lot of conversations out there about personal finance and student debt. And so then I ended up founding the Debt Free Vets group and ended up going to the Uncharted conference and meeting Phil, so. There you go, and which is also where I first met Phil. So, okay, Phil, this is a great place, I think, to bring you in. So you have an interesting background. You are a little 
perhaps further on in your career and have perhaps gone down the route of, I think, I suppose more specialization. But I get the sense of almost the there's an entrepreneur trapped in your body a little bit where you've got quite a lot of fingers and lots of pies. So, Phil, give us a bit more in your background. And I have to say, as, as Phil talks, one of my favorite things about Phil is his ability to spin a yarn with unexpected twists in an entirely deadpan way that you just don't see the humor coming until it it doesn't so much hit you in the face as sneakily lift up your arm and tickle you on the funny bone in, in quite an amusing way. So, so Phil, give us a little bit of background. Like, you're a mystery wrapped up in an enigma to me. Like, clear some of the mist for me. Please don't overpromise. <laughs> My main gig is that I'm a board-certified surgeon, and I do a lot of stuff on the side. So I have multiple side projects or actual companies. And I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going as far as I've gone, but it's a passion. I can't help it. It's actually a medical condition, I think. So my interest in money was not from a greed standpoint, which is one of the taboos that we might talk about. It's because very early on, right out of vet school, my dad took me to a financial mini evening conference, an hour long discussion. And that taught me more in one hour than I had ever heard in my entire life because we don't talk about these things. So that piqued my interest and I started to read about it and became really passionate about it. One thing led to another. I started to learn about investing and entrepreneurship and so on and so forth. So it's been a journey. You know, both of you have said something. There's a commonality there that both of you almost by accident like it wasn't by design either of you stumbled upon this knowledge so one question would be thinking back to those sessions you went in meredith with your your kind of out there professor and and phil with your with this short class or the short short session what were the important lessons that stuck with you and that you know that inspired you to go down this route I'm, I'm curious if there were similar lessons and I'm actually curious if they're still relevant today you know are they things that really broad stroke things or or was there something in particular jumped out to you in my case there's no question the conclusion of the evening was there's no way to retire if you don't invest you can't possibly save your way to retirement you have to invest to boost your your returns. So yes, it's always true. That'll never change. Yeah. And for me, it was you know, that that early experience was about just getting the basics down. And I think just having an idea of what are the basic money principles, um, it really can set yourself up for being able to continue your education. And so starting out with just pay yourself first. And so any anyone who reads anything about personal finance, that pay yourself first starts, uh, that's, that's one of the first things that you come across. And then if you can, finding ways to have more than one stream of income is something else that I had learned about early on. And it's not something that I focused on early on, but it's something that I learned about. How plausible is that? This, I want to pick up on that a little bit. I've just finished up 
the there was a, a, a session as a you know a, a conference which was the global vet career summit last weekend which uh phil i know you were speaking at meredith and i don't know if you were uh, speaking at that one doing the us us content and what was apparent to me and has become apparent to me doing these podcasts actually is just how many side talents people have which should come as no surprise all really given you know the, the breadth of skills that veterinarians usually have it's unlikely people are just good at studying they're, they're often excellent musicians they have the same skills that got them to vet school they've been able to master other crafts whether it's music or art or sports there's, there's a number of other ways and and one of the big recurring themes has been balance but it's really hard to get to build balance into your life when you've got a job that's as all-consuming as veterinary medicine, particularly at the start. How realistic is it for people to have side hustles that aren't professional things or things that they don't really understand how to make money? You know, because in veterinary medicine, it's served on a plate. You don't have to do any of the marketing. You don't have to. You just walk into a room. Somebody else has arranged an appointment, so they've arranged a customer to conveniently walk up with a problem. And a credit card, and all you've got to do is apply your medical brain. Like, you don't have to really hustle at all in order to make that happen. But when you start doing sort of side hustles and, and developing secondary income streams, there's a whole other area to learn, which strikes me as a really hard thing to do. How realistic is it for people to have sort of secondary income? And, and is there a time when you think that starts to become more sensible than other times? And, and either of you or both of you can take a bite at that. Yeah, so it's an interesting question. And so I think it depends on who you are. I think there are some people who right out of vet school are ready to have a side hustle. And I'm seeing it more and more as some of the newer grads are coming out and there's there's been increased interest in the business side of veterinary medicine from some of the new grads in recent years. So I think it depends on who you are. I think there are some vets that really need to focus on the medical side of things the first few years that they're out. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think, develop, of course, developing your medical skills and becoming the best clinician that you can be is incredibly important. And so if you need to take, I mean, three, five years or longer to develop that before you pursue anything else, I think there's nothing wrong with that at all. And certainly in some ways, I think there are more opportunities out there than there used to be. So now that there are vets out there speaking on non-medical topics and writing on non-medical topics, which didn't used to be a thing. You don't need to be a specialist anymore to have an influence. And that didn't used to be the case. Uh, it used to be that, and I was actually told before I started vet school, I said, well, I'm interested in teaching. And I was told, well, unless you're a specialist, you're not going to get any opportunity to teach anyone anything. And that's not true. That's not even true in the clinical setting. You know, you can, you can train vets that are less experienced than you or vets that are less experienced in a particular thing than you are. You can train right. your technicians. Right, a form of teaching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's not really true. But yeah, I think it's something that it depends on who you are when that comes into play. The internet certainly opened up a battle of opportunities as well. Phil, any thoughts there? 
I agree that there's a limitless amount of opportunities now with the technology, with internet, with writing, podcasting, starting an, an e-commerce. It's become extremely easy to have an audience these days. Now, monetizing it is a whole different story. Right, because you still have to be good, like really good. And maybe that was the point the specialist was making, like in order to teach, there's an element of sort of snobbery there in that statement, like, oh, you're, unless you're a specialist, you're never going to teach. But you can probably put that in brackets as a professor at a vet school for right or wrong. But you do have to be exceptional in an area in order for people to want to follow you. Like, you know, there are a million podcasts out there in the world and so much of it's noise and not signal you know i think the vast majority of podcasts do well to get 100 or 200 plays in a month so you, you still have to be very very good at something are people being distracted like you, you guys you guys have been studying money and medicine and you know you both are extremely good in in what you've been doing clinically and you you've developed these other side areas but you know these guys are coming out they've invested 100 200 maybe you know, more than that thousand dollars in their education. Does it make sense for them to have side hustles? Is the level of debt that they incur reasonably pegged to the income they can make back out? Or is this basically just a, a financial trap from the start? And there's, there's perhaps there's a bigger question off the back of that, which I'll come to in a second. But, you know, is the gearing of income to sort of, you know, the amount of debt you acquire, is that ratio so far out of whack that this doesn't make sense anymore? Like side hustles are the only way out of this in the same way investing might be the only way to a prosperous retirement? Or, or is there something else going on here? I'm not sure that it's necessarily the way out, unless you're talking about buying a practice or starting a practice that can be lucrative, not to be shy with words. But I think a lot of these side gigs are not necessarily to accelerate repayment of your debt. Many side gigs are there to be an outlet to escape the madness of veterinary practice or to reach a better balance or to just follow your passion. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to generate a lot of money to make it worth it. It keeps you energized and keeps your energy up for the main the main gig and I suppose all three of us are examples in point like here we are all doing something else but all share a passion for veterinary medicine still so okay Meredith I've taken us off down like a rabbit hole perhaps you didn't intend us to dive down there which is kind of pretty much a trademark of any episode of, of blood dissection but let's um let's sort of bounce it back actually before I bounce it back I'm going to ask that one last little question then do the sums add up? And I suppose, suppose Phil, that was a sort you know, you didn't quite get an answer on that one. So I'm going to press you a little bit harder. And Meredith, you're, you're waving at me crazily there. So, you know, do the sums add up? Is it sensible to come out of college with 200,000 in debt for what we are currently getting in practice? And what is the damage of making a bad decision? Let's say you burn out in three to five years, you do the bouncy ball thing where you try one practice, doesn't work and other practice doesn't work now you're burned and you want to do something different completely this feels like a really bad financial you know from a financial point of view it feels like a really bad series of decisions that's played out here 
do you have an opinion on whether this works right now? Like, if you had your time again, knowing you were going to graduate with 200 grand's worth of debt, would you do this again? Because salaries haven't doubled. No, salaries haven't doubled. And so the thing about student debt in particular is that no matter how much debt you're in, there's a plan for you. So in the US, there are the forgiveness plans. And so you could have, theoretically or realistically, you could have $400,000 in student debt and you could have a salary of 80000 a year and there's still a plan for you because the the U.S. government has the forgiveness plans. And yeah, I mean, if, if you have private loans, which most people don't, but if you have private loans, you've got to pay those back just like any other debt. But the federal student loans, they have the plans where you pay a minimum amount for 20 to 25 years. Uh, you do have to save up for something called the tax bomb where once you get forgiveness, you have to pay tax on that amount of student debt that's forgiven. And so that's something that's really important to remember to save for if you are one of the U.S. students going for that or U.S. graduates going for that. But certainly as far as your earlier question about is is veterinary medicine worth it even if you're going into debt to become a vet? Well, absolutely. It's an incredible profession. We do so much good in the world. And we got into this profession because this is our passion. This is what we wanted to do. Uh, many of us had a, a long road just getting into vet school. And yeah, if you do decide that you don't want to be a vet anymore, then there's still a plan. And there are more more and more jobs out there these days than ever before where you can use your degree in a different way besides being a clinician. So let's pull around and, and focus back on money. Money was something that I felt incredibly poorly educated on. You know, in, in fact, in some ways, my family were almost not quite allergic to it. But, you know, Scotland is a, let's just got a much more socialist left leaning country than, than certainly than America but probably more left-leaning than much the United Kingdom as well. And so the, the you know, money or, or having it was almost like a, a dirty kind of thing. Like if you wanted to make lots of money, there was, you know, it was almost, almost, almost a taboo, like not quite, but, but certainly it was, it was, I'm sure my parents, they wanted me to do well and to have a comfortable life. What parent doesn't want that? But greed was certainly... And greed and capitalism and business were such closely aligned things that it, you know, I, I almost was a pariah for, you know, like they didn't put me off business and, and wanting to, uh, an entrepreneurship. But I also did not receive a very strong financial education. And, and I, I feel like that education continues all the time. So my question would be, uh, what are the most important lessons what do people really not understand about money that hurts them? That's, I think let's start with that question. We'll see where we dive off to. So let's jump, jump to Phil on that one. We'll come back to you, Meredith. I'm not sure if it answers your question directly, but I think it's important to avoid being a commodity, meaning not having any more skills than 200 other vet students coming out of vet school. 
not having any extra passions or talents or skills. From an, an employer standpoint, it's really important to have somebody who has an edge. And coming out of school, it could be as simple as being proficient at doing a spay. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's from what I hear, from what I see, it's become a rarity to come out of vet school and being really comfortable doing a spay. Well, like it or not, that's your bread and butter in, in veterinary practice. Same with dentistry. Certainly you can learn a lot on the, on the job, but that's not really what an employer is looking for. They, they want somebody who is as independent as humanly possible. If they happen to have a passion for ultrasound or cardiology, that you can learn later. You can be sent to continuing education by, an, by a generous employer. So th that would be my answer. Don't be a commodity. If you're a commodity, look at it from a client standpoint. If they have to choose from five practices that look exactly the same, smell exactly the same, offer exactly the same services, it's really hard to choose. But if somebody looks different and more appealing, it instantly has more value. It's and uh, value is the, I think that's the word there that jumps out at me is, you know, the way you don't be a commodity is you, you highlight exceptional value in some way, shape or form. Are there some, you mentioned surgery and, and basic surgery. Is there a list of values, particularly as an employer, that you look for with people that might work for you or with you? Willingness to work hard. I'm not even going to go into honesty and ethics and a love for animals because hopefully that's a given. <laughs> right. A love of people may not be so obvious. Mm. You know, that's that was one of the biggest lessons from coming out of vet school. We're not in the animal business. We're clearly in the people business. Okay, we need to pause there. I mean, you just uncovered, to my from my observation, probably the single or one of the pillar problems, or perhaps it's the sinkhole problems underneath the foundation of veterinary medicine. People aren't in this for people. They're in it, they're in it for animals. And the number of vets that genuinely don't like people is staggering. How can you thrive? How can you be good in a people-based industry when, when, when you don't like that? I mean, if, is that the number one problem to fix? We're, like we're here to talk about money and to talk about debt, but if you do not enjoy what you're going to do and you're, let's face it, none of us really gets to be terribly skilled in things we don't like. So if you fail to recognize the importance of, of relationship-driven medicine, relationship, just relationships and the value of relationships beyond that of the 44-legged one with, with the, you know, the, the relatively hairless two-legged one, are you ever going to enjoy this, commit to this, dedicate yourself to this in a way? And, and the other thing you said, said which I think there may be a, a relationship with this too, is that desire to work hard. And I don't think many people desire to work unhard. <laughs> Let me butcher the English language a bit there. Or to, you know, to work in a, a slack or a soft or a lazy way. But there is a compression of time effect that has happened over the last 10, 20 years. Maybe it's been happening for forever where, you know, if you look at laboratory medicine, we used to get lab results back, it would take a week. 
still does in human medicine. When you used to order something, you'd order it from a catalog and it would take 28 days to deliver. Whereas now you get your results back the same day with point of care diagnostics. And we have all used Amazon Prime and we get next day delivery. And we also are all now looking at Instagram and the perfect messages that people put out that portray themselves to be amazing at what they're doing patience and and a commitment to working hard and they're actually even a realization that what hard work actually looks like to become great at something you used ultrasound as an example before it takes years to get good at ultrasound to get really good that that, that concept is malcolm gladwell was at ten thousand hours you just don't get to be good at anything cheaply quickly you know, it needs dedication it needs practice and it needs that requires you to form solid relationships like you're not going to be able to generate dentals if you're not able to connect with a client and have them believe that you are the right person for that job or care about their animal so i mean in a sense what are the skills that people need in order to make money like, what are the things they should focus on? What are the pain points that, that must be addressed as a profession in order for us to even start on this journey of debt repayment? I would say focus on the patient. You know, provide the absolute best medicine you can. Don't judge people by their cover or don't assume what they have in their pocketbook or in their, their bank account and just recommend whatever the patient needs. Whether yeah. the client can afford it or not, that's a, whole, that's a whole different story and a whole different conversation. But at least offer the best possible care you think this pet deserves or needs. That's yeah. where it all starts. Yeah, I agree. Because if you, if you don't present the best possible plan, well, one, you're not doing the best thing for the animal because you're, you're not even offering the client the ideal plan for the patient. And once you start making assumptions about what people can afford, uh, one, you're going to be wrong sometimes, and they could actually afford to do everything. But then it, it's also, also for yourself as a professional, you're not going to feel good about the work you're doing if you're always reducing, reducing, reducing you know, the recommendation that you should be giving. And yeah, not every client's going to go for it. And I, I hear from, it depends on where you live, right? So there are, are places that are more affluent and maybe 80% of your clients are going to go for the gold standard plan. There are also places where people have less money and 80% of your clients are not going to go for the gold standard plan. Either way, you should be starting with the same plan that you think is the best plan. And so I think... One of the things as far as being happy with the profession is in, with yourself as a professional is if, if, you're, if you're always reducing what you think is the best plan, then you're, you're not going to be happy. And then also, in, in turn, if you're not offering the client the best, then you're going to end up making less money, right? And it doesn't matter from the perspective of we want to make as much money as we can, but it matters from the perspective of if the practice doesn't make as much money, then we can't provide what is needed for our staff members. We can't give them raises. If we don't bring money into the practice, we can't pay the bills. We can't buy new equipment. 
we can't provide benefits that we don't currently provide in a practice. So it, it, it extends far beyond the money. Is there, and I, I want to move us and dig back perhaps into the debt side of things a little bit more, Meredith. And, and so I want to pick up your story and, and sorry for bouncing around a little bit on, on the timelines here, but let's go back to your story specifically. So you graduated and you are now starting to take things a bit seriously. You've, you've got this six-figure debt and you pay it off in three and a half years. Can you talk us through your strategies to do that? So I started out like a lot of other people where I got into this sort of shock moment where I just all of a sudden realized, okay, I have all of this debt and what am I going to do? And to give you an idea how far in I was at the time, I did an internship and that was during 2008, 2009. So my husband was actually laid off during my internship and we accumulated a bit of credit card debt, which was not normal for us. And then I moved to uh, Richmond, Virginia, where I still am, and had a year where Everyone was saying, well, you know, put your loans off for a year, uh, which is a bad idea to do these days. But back then it was okay. So put your loans off for a year. What's the difference between then and now? Yeah, the difference between then and now is back then putting your loans in forbearance was something that was commonly done. And there was no downside to doing that really, other than you were a year behind on paying off the the debt. But the goal at the time was that everyone was going to pay off their debt. Now that the forgiveness plans are a thing, it's a terrible idea to ever put your loans on forbearance because if you had an internship year where you made almost nothing, well, you can actually have $0 payments counted toward forgiveness. And so if you end up going for forgiveness, then that time is lost. You could have 12 payments in. You could be a whole year into the forgiveness plan. So, so it's a bad idea now. But uh, at the time I did that, we paid off our credit card debt and saved up and bought a house. And uh, we didn't, I, I don't know if you remember this day from our previous conversation, but we didn't, we didn't buy a small house. We bought a, a really nice house. And so then all of a sudden I wasn't in 120,000 in debt. I was in a half million dollars in debt. And so when this hit me, it hit me pretty hard that, okay, all of a sudden I've got to start making payments on my student debt that I actually didn't have to pay before and moved into a new house at the same time. So it was a pretty big shock. And so we started looking, we made a budget, which we had not been doing routinely, and started finding areas where we could make cuts in the budget. Then took really every every dollar that we could find, so either from uh, selling a few things or from raises or from bonuses and put it all toward the student debt. So there are some people who pay off their student debt by working a lot of extra hours. I actually didn't do that. I think that's a great way to to do it. And you had brought up earlier about side hustles. Well, the the most lucrative side hustle for a new grad is going to be doing relief work and and doing working extra shifts, you know, particularly in emergency, right? Like just screaming out for support and assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually didn't do a lot of that. 
and still managed to pay off the debt in a short period of time. Mm. Okay, so digging into those strategies just a little more, because I, I, I just want them to be really clear for people. So what I heard there, and please fill in any blanks, you, aside from the house purchase, <laughs> where, you, where you did buy big, which is quite a, quite a big one to add in there, you did not buy a lot of things that you might consider luxury. No, not at all. So you applied the, if you can't afford it, don't buy it to everything except the house. Mm-hmm. But you moved into an area which is uh, a better value for dollar area as well. So like I'm sure a lot of us, particularly this is the insidious toxic thing of Instagram, right? Like where you feel like unless you're living the California or New York hustle life that somehow you failed like that sort of thing is going to be toxic waste in your brain and cause you to live above your means right so so it sounds like lesson one was live below your means to create the little bit of money that you can then use to either address debt or to start to invest like is that one of the principles that is absolutely fundamental here Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So living below your means. Yep. And I mean, that's really, that's the only way that you're going to pay off a debt, really. And that means doing a budget, right? Yes, like, absolutely. And, and since since we recorded our first interview, Meredith, so I went through the, the somewhat dubious experience of getting divorced. And that will that will very much allow you to strip back to your basic amounts of you know what you have incoming what you've outgoing and you're going to have to live a slightly different quality of life afterwards when you go down to single income so so doing that certainly that's a a thing I found very valuable is to work out how much you can live a comfortable life on without a certain amount of luxury and my my Scottishness definitely came in handy there because I don't need a lot of luxury in my life (laughs) And then knowing what, what what you've got above that. Now, then the other the other things then were so so increasing your incoming now, and you mentioned through raises, and again that comes through adding value. So, how did you add value to get raises, and and were you proactive in pursuing those? Like, and how did those conversations go? And 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 Phil, please jump in here if you've got if you got tips because because people are shy, and and what we know is that from various studies that there is a gender pay gap. Some of that is thought to be down to a, you know, guys are just more brazen about asking for certain things where, and women feel less confident to have a conversation and maybe get into a negotiated conversation. Add into that the veterinary disease of not wanting to hear the word no or being conflict averse and, you know, and asking for a raise and asking for a bit more is potentially putting yourself into a position of conflict. So I'm curious, like, did you go after that? Did you go about that in a different way? And how important is it for people to be able to get increased revenue, like an extra thousand a year with compounding acting one way or the other? Maybe we can talk about the impact of, you know, the the magic and the hell of compound interest in a second. Let's sidebar that for discussion. But what techniques or how important is it to get raises? And oh, and also, how important is it to balance? Like we talked about balance before. You go do, like most graduates are dying under 
the strain of of doing a normal job like there's anxiety out there to then go out and do relief shifts on top of that i mean a would most like many employers not forbid it and even if they didn't like certainly as an employer i would not want my team doing that because i know they're going to come back to me on a monday burned out so how how viable is that as a strategy that's like a mega question and two two mega questions in one there you go you're welcome take a crack so i'm not a good example of a raise because i never had one but i think a good tip might be my really fortunate first negotiation with an employer. This was uh, my first real job as a surgeon. My employer offered me a straight salary and it was good. But even though I was a baby surgeon, I said, nah, I'm not interested. I want to be on ProSal. And I knew very little about it at the time. It was sheer luck. I knew intuitively that I would be a hard worker. There was no doubt in my mind. And I, you know, I had this passion to fix animals. That's what I wanted to do. So I said, no, I don't want a salary. I want to be on ProSal. And it may be called differently, but it's basically you're paid on production, basically, you know, base mm-hmm. plus production. Yep. Well, that was probably the best decision I ever made almost by accident. It's controversial now, and maybe it was always controversial because of the murkier side of ethics, I think, that come in where you start to... I think people are concerned that when we have a production-based pay scheme that does that open up the ability for other things than clinical clinical decisions? Yeah, are there now... I'm, oh, I'm going to make 20% on this, so maybe I should push this test or that test. Which I have to say, I think in the veterinary profession, it's highly, highly... I mean, I'm sure there are bad eggs in any area industry, but like the veterinary profession is incredibly ethical. So I I, I don't, but there, there feels like there's some backlash against that, or I've certainly read articles against it. I can see the downside of it in general practice, and I agree with you, it's probably less frequent than people talk about Mm. in my field in surgery you just don't do a tplo where there isn't a need for it you don't fix a broken leg when there where there isn't a a broken leg so i think it's even less murky yeah either you have a patient or you don't so i don't think it was an issue in general practice one of my side gigs is that i co-own the general practice i have had associates on salary I do have associates on ProSal. I'll never pay somebody on salary ever again because it wasn't conducive to hard work. That's what I meant earlier. My associates on ProSal are, when there's no patients left, which doesn't happen, it's not a thing anymore, but they don't go home. Whereas my salaried associate, when there was nothing to do, even if I was at 2 p.m., she would simply go home instead of asking to, you know, be kept in, as a, as somebody who can see more patients. So to me, it's a win-win. It's the ultimate win-win-win. The, the client wins because they get better care for their pet. The pet wins. The associate or veterinarian wins. And the practice wins. And therefore, the, the support staff wins. Go ahead, Meredith. Yeah, and so... 
I also, I started out on salary as an ER vet. And the past several years now, I've been on ProSal. As soon as I went from salary to ProSal, I started making more. Now that's, that's kind of evened out over the past few years, where it's, it's, there was a, an increase and in not necessarily a continued bump like that. But for ER, I think it's a little bit different, where as a GP, maybe you've got a chance to see another case, or you could say, hey, go to the emergency clinic. I have to see everything that comes in. So it's not the same for me. And I don't really, I don't practice differently than I did when I was on salary. And I think that's probably going to be the case for a lot of vets that went from salary to pro sal. And I don't know if it's correct to say, especially if you did an internship or not. I feel like my internship prepared me in such a way that I was going to practice at a certain level anyway. But I think it does cause you to be a little bit more aware of the charges that are going into the computer and making sure everything is charged for and making sure that it goes under you and not somebody else. So in that way, I, I think it, it is helpful. And yeah, it's not, it's not something that I have seen change the culture. We're certainly not, as ER doctors, we're not more competitive just because we're on ProSal now. It wasn't a thing before and it's not a thing now. So folks that, that see that, it's not something that I personally have seen. So going back to negotiation, so you were talking about that a little bit and saying, okay, it's something that women are not as inclined to do. I, I do think that that's true. And, and, I, and I say that not as a completely blanket uh, before I get buckets of hate mail, but that is a reasonably well-established mm -hmm. part of the reason. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's changing to some extent. And I think there are there are some uh, women who are, are better at it than others. And it's something that I had to learn how to do. I had to get some help from a colleague to learn how to be better at that. And certainly that's something, any, any skill that you want to learn, there's, there's going to be a colleague out there who can help you, whether it's negotiation or surgery, you know, someone's going to be out there who can help you learn any skill that you need to know. So I learned how to negotiate, but it, I didn't do, and I haven't done as much negotiation from a, a salary perspective as from a schedule perspective. Okay. And so there's a lot of different things that you can learn to negotiate and, and be happier with your job uh, besides salary. What were some of the tips? Uh, I think that's a great point. You know, wealth comes in many formats, doesn't it? Uh, not having money affects most of the other one's uh, ability. But then the one thing, if you've not got much money, is you do generally have way more time when you've got way less money. Those two seem to act in opposite opposite directions until you work out passive income streams to an extent. What were some of the tips, like negotiating tips, that have served you quite well? So the, the biggest one is to ask for what you want. Decide what you want, ask for what you want, and see what happens. And it sounds easy, but it's not easy when you're the one doing it and when you have very little experience doing it. And when you think you're not going to get what you ask for and what you'll find, I, I was surprised, you'll find that you get more of what you want just by asking for it, 
Whereas if you just assume that you're not going to get it, so you don't ask for it, of course you're, you're not going to get anything that you don't ask for. That feels a lot like part of the problem in our exam rooms all over the world as well. Like it's the same principle or the same disease underlying that, isn't it? Like it's almost a, a fear of, well, I'm not good enough, so I'm not worth it. Or it's a fear of, oh, the client might not want to say, I might hear the word no, and they might not like me if I say this thing here. So we don't say it. And if you don't earn the money, you're not worth the money. You're not bringing value to the table. So you're in a very weak negotiating position. I wonder if those two things are, well, I mean, they feel like they're very intimately linked to me. I want to ask, so let's try and keep in a, a some degree of structure here. So Meredith, you have paid down, you're paying down your debt by living reasonably frugally. In your case, you're not taking on a, a lot of side hustle, but you're working a job, you are paying it down, not, not spending it and working away through this debt. What sacrifices did you make in order to get that debt paid down in that time? Because it's, it's not like you did it over a decade, you did it fast. So there must have been sacrifices in order to take chunks out of that. You're talking, you know, 25 grand plus a year that you repaid as a, as a couple. Mm-hmm. There's some pain there. Describe some of the pain. Yeah, yeah. And, and you do point out something very important is that we did have a dual income. And so certainly not everyone can pay off their debt at all. And that's why those forgiveness programs are in place. Not everyone can have a dual income and that's okay. There's, there's a plan regardless. But as far as, as far as things that we did, certainly several ways of, in, of reducing expenses. I think the, the most dramatic thing that I can tell you is we went down to one car for a while. And so that, of course, in the US, that's going to sound crazy to a lot of people. How could you function with only one car? But we did. And it can be done and it can be done in a place with no public transportation, like, like where I live, where there's basically none unless you live in the middle of the city. So you, you can make unusual sacrifices to pay off debt. And I did find some ways of, I found ways to go on vacation without spending a lot. And so one thing I've told Phil is that we didn't skip vacations. Like a lot of people, I've known people in my Facebook group who have said that they didn't go on vacation for five years or eight years trying to pay off their debt. I don't recommend that. You can find ways to use points or, or you can find discounts and you can still get away and, and recharge yourself and uh, go on vacation without spending a lot. So, so there are ways of doing that. And we just didn't, one thing that you touched on without saying it earlier is lifestyle creep. We just didn't, you know, we, got our, we got our lifestyle to a certain level and we didn't continue to go up with it. As we got raises and, and started making more money, we just kept everything the same for a while. And that actually made a big impact. You became wealthy by pegging your outgoings to a previous standard as your incomings started to grow. Mm hmm I mean, how much of the, the burnout we experience in practice, or so many experience in practice, 
is often fingers are pointed at the level of debt. Like how, how much you know, is, is it a reason for people to burn out? You've outlined forgiveness. You've outlined strategies to manage your debt. Is the level of repayment, and I suppose this comes back to one of the fundamental principles of money that, you know, I'm curious about what the debt interest rate is, and I'm sure it's different from different, it would certainly be different in different countries, but I imagine it's different in different states even, or is it a federally pinned thing for, for US listeners? And is the amount you repay at, does it make sense to pay it back over a longer period of time, i.e. is that debt amount, is that interest rate very low? For example, we're in COVID just now and you could borrow £50,000, it's about you know 70, well, it used to be 70, it's about $50,000 now, <laughs> the, the way the pound's gone. But you could borrow that and the government will pay the interest on it at 0% for the first 12 months. And then the remaining, you know, for the next five years, it's repayable at 2.5% interest. Now, I know I can grow my business more than 2.5% a year. So it makes a great sense for me to take that money and to put it to work and invest it in the practice. Not to fritter it away on rubbish, but to invest it in things that will help grow the business. In that sense, what is the sort of relative interest rates and you know how much or how fast should people pay this down is is there a formula of some kind in terms of you know how much of your salary you should be contributing towards this debt and what sort of time frame you should ideally pay it over like if you look back on it now do you think oh damn it that interest rate was really good i shouldn't have paid it back in three and a half years that's an interesting question because i actually my student debt was at a pretty low interest rate. And it was at a lower interest rate than is available right now. Uh, we actually had interest rate that averaged about 3%, 3, 3.5%, which is really not very much. And some people would look at it and say, well, that's, that's just like inflation. There's no need to pay that off in a short period of time. Well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, if you're able to pay it off and then you're free of that debt, and then you can focus on other financial goals, then I think it's worthwhile. Now, some people look at it as only from a numbers perspective and say, oh, well, you could have invested and you could have made more. Well, you could have, but I could have, but I wouldn't have because I wouldn't have felt like I had the bandwidth to do that. And so it depends on how you look at it. And so so as far as the interest rates lately, the interest rates have been as high as 6 or 7% for recent students and recent graduates. So that is pretty darn high, wow. unfortunately. Considering the way interest rates have gone over the past 15 years, that seems... Is that the price of forgiveness? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a, a loaded question, yeah. And... <laughs> And so, because well, that's not um, reflective of the way interest rates have been going, like no, it's not. It's very interesting how they've been they've been going down for things like mortgages, and they've been going up for uh, student debt. and And it is a federal interest rate, so it is the same in every single state. And this coming year, uh, partly because of COVID and partly because of where the economy is, the interest rate is going to be less this year. I believe it's 4.3. I'd have to double check, but it's going to be less this coming year than it has been. 
but yeah, I mean, that, that makes a huge impact. The other thing that has a huge impact now is that the past several years, interest has accumulated on all of the debt while everyone's been in school, which wasn't the case when I was in school. About half of my loans were actually not accumulating debt while I was in school. And now they all are because they've changed the regulations and they've changed them in such a way that it doesn't favor graduate students in general. So, yeah, I mean, is it is it worthwhile to repay? Now, there are two different tracks that you can take for debt repayment. One is you pay it off in as little time as possible. And some people who are doing that actually refinance it into a private loan and they can get a lower interest rate, especially now and as as we go into the fall and and the zero interest rate um, isn't a thing anymore. And so that's one route. And so that's the route that I took. I paid it off in as little time as possible. And then the other thing you can do is go for forgiveness and, and then you've got a 20 to 25 year plan. And it's not something that is a choice for everybody. So not everybody could possibly pay off their debt. And that's why they've got these forgiveness plans. And so, you know, we could talk all day about making sacrifices and trying to pay off debt. But if you've got a four to one debt to income ratio, it's probably not going to be long term the best strategy to actually pay it off. Um, you'll end up spending more than if you went for a forgiveness plan. You just can't live as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I've seen vets who, vets who can pay it off tell vets who can't pay it off, you know, basically go live in a box for, you know, 10, 15 years and, and maybe you can pay it off. And I, I don't recommend that. So for, forgiveness is the way to go if you are in a situation like that. How does forgiveness work? Mm-hmm. So the way that forgiveness works is the federal government has certain guidelines where they, they take what they call your discretionary income. And so your payment is between uh, 10 and 15% of your discretionary income each month. And that's all you should be paying if you're going for forgiveness. So, so those vets that are going for forgiveness, some of them will say, oh, I made extra money. I'm going to put it on my debt. Not a good strategy because it's just going to, you're just giving money to Uncle Sam for no reason, actually. Because if you're, you're either paying it off or you're not paying it off. If you're not paying it off, then any extra money you get could be going to an emergency fund or going to try to fund a, a future practice or a future financial goal. And so you're making minimum payments every month for 20 to 25 years, depending on the particular plan. And you should also, over that 20 to 25 years, you should be saving up for the tax bomb because you have to pay tax on the debt that is forgiven at the 20 to 25 year mark. Okay, and that that amount is going to vary depending on your discretionary, but is it feasible then that somebody's after 20 to 25 years paying, let's say they, they're paying back, I don't know, what's a reasonable amount, but like $400 a month, $200 a month. What, what are these numbers that people would be paying back? Maybe it's more than that. I, I do not know, but... Mm-hmm. But it sounds like a large, let's say you've got 200 grand in loans and you've got 100 grand that's outstanding after that period of time, you're going to pay, have to have 
and what's your tax rate? 30%, something like that. Depends on how much money you were making at the time, I imagine. But you're looking at a, you know, a five-figure tax bomb that will fall due right there and then or within that tax year? Or can you get for you know, some degree of payment plan with that as well? Like, how does that bit work? Yeah, and so nobody nobody knows for sure exactly it's how not it's going to work. Because it <laughs> it's 20 happened. to 25 years in the future. Yes, it has not happened yet. And so it's very interesting. You will have, if you're going for forgiveness, uh, typically you are going to have a five-figure amount that you're going to have to pay at the end of that to pay the tax bomb. And so, I mean, that could be $30,000. It could be $50,000. It it just, it depends on how much debt you have and it depends on your tax bracket at the time. I foresee that there will probably be people, including our colleagues, that will be in trouble with the IRS because something's going to come up in 20 to 25 years something's going to come up. There's going to be a, a car accident. There's going to be something that happens with your kid. And so if you, if, you don't have, if you don't have savings set aside for the tax bomb, you're, you're going to be in trouble. And there probably will be banks that will have loans specifically to help you pay the tax bomb so that you don't get in trouble with the federal government. So speaking of things that eat wealth, I was gobsmacked to hear you know so the american healthcare system there's the whole podcast we could do on this but let's talk about strategies to preserve you know once you've got wealth to preserve wealth and so i want to share a story of somebody that i heard of recently who became injured not at work it was a you know just a, a life injury who then received some medical treatment that made it worse who then ended up in surgery, multiple surgeries, first one became infected, multiple surgeries down the line, and then ended up with, who had insurance, but then just had a you know, co-payment that was beyond the means of being able to pay. And in situations like that, I'm, I'm hearing of horrific stories where people have insurance, but they end up having to declare bankruptcy. That doesn't carry quite the penalty that it perhaps does here in the United Kingdom, but but it still wrecks your credit. You know, there's a, there's a certain number of important doors are going to close to you if that happens. And I was thinking, well, who has $100,000 sitting as a relief fund in the off chance that you end up with a million-dollar medical bill? Like COVID. Let's talk COVID. You end up on a respirator in a state for three weeks, like, what is your medical bill coming out of that place? And I'm curious as to how both of you are thinking about this, you know, like that that seems like a, a very real existential risk for people in the United States. You know, in, in, in the UK, we have the National Health Service. Thank God. And please keep your paws off that, Donald Trump, with our Brexit deal. That must be a big consideration and a, and, and a weight. Do people think enough about that? Are people protected enough by that? And perhaps you can broaden that answer out. And, and Phil, please come back in on this whenever you feel appropriate. But what are the, give us the top five strategies for protecting wealth. And then perhaps we can move into maybe five strategies for building wealth on the other side of that. Wow. That's got to be one of the most monster questions I've ever asked. We're going to solve 
all of our listeners' problems in these 10 questions or answers. <laughs> Let's have a go. If anyone can do it, you can do it. Oh, sure. With Meredith's help. So that's why it's so important to have an emergency fund or okay. a rainy day fund. The sooner you can get there and fund it, the better off you're going to be and the better you're going to sleep at night. In the US, there's a very important insurance plan called the disability insurance plan. I'm not sure if it's called that way in all the many, many, many countries your podcast is uh, listened to. But that's critically important. And ironically, the younger you are, the more likely you are to become disabled. Ironically, that's when you're the least likely to think about it and pay for such a plan. And then having a consistent strategy to invest the usual, well, the, the, the recommendation was to save 10% of your income and put it towards saving, um, I'm sorry, investing. Now people tend to save 15%. So that's three. <laughs> Meredith, can you come up with two? All right. So Phil, so you had disability insurance, emergency fund, and what was your third one? I got a sidebar question on the uh, rainy day fund, the emergency fund. So what amount, and this feels particular to business as well, COVID has not been disastrous because we have kept money aside as a cash reservoir or a liquid reservoir for when tough moments came along. Personal fund, how big should it be? Like how, how long do you have to endure and what sort of size should that fund be? I think the traditional numbers that are mentioned are three to six months worth of expenses. A few people talk about the same suggestion for businesses, but as you just mentioned, I think it's just as important. And I think three to six months is reasonable as well. Mm. That depends on your comfort level. If you've been burned before, if you've really been hurt by COVID, for example, hopefully you will learn from your lesson and maybe you'll start to say for nine months or 12 months worth of expenses, both on the personal side and the business side. Yeah. Yeah. So if we go back and talk about the personal emergency fund a little bit more, I do think three to six months is a great number for an emergency fund in general, but there's also what I consider to be the starter emergency fund. And so if you've got if you've got consumer debt like credit card debt, or if you are one of the people planning to actually pay off your student debt, you may not have three to six months of expenses saved up as an emergency fund, and that's okay in that situation. So then what I suggest, and to keep it relevant to everyone, I won't give a dollar amount, uh, but what I suggest is that it's enough so that if one of your pets had to have an emergency surgery that you couldn't do, that you could afford it. So in the U.S., that might be three to $5,000. But uh, that, that's what I'd suggest for a starter emergency fund. Okay, cool. That leads, leads me to another point. I think it's important to be in the mindset that if you cannot afford to pay for something and it's insurable, you should get insurance. So if you can't afford three to $5,000 for a bloat or, or spinal surgery, then get pet insurance. So insurance then, that, this might be a 0. 
So are there, which insurances are essential insurances? Well, we've already said disability. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a crazy idea for a vet or a tech to get pet insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to do chemo, you may get a discount, but it's still going to be a bundle. And I've actually heard of practices doing this as a perk, because although it's quite expensive for the practice, it almost always comes back in the form of being able to do the treatments. And, you know, the practices may forgive the excess payment or something like that. And pets are our passion. So for, you know, your technician who has those, you know, three animals, but goes to work, lives, breathes, eats, cries, laughs. Those animals are everything, as, as is often the case with our technicians. It's an incredible thing for them to have that as a part of a package. Yeah, if a practice could afford that, afford it, that would definitely be a great benefit. Mm. But And when they get sick, as they invariably too do, then they don't have to discount, which sort of pays for the pays for it in a roundabout way anyway sorry phil that's you got so uh, disability pet insurance in terms of other personal insurances are the things that we should be doing the other ones i think are the more traditional types of insurance like auto insurance home insurance or renters insurance health insurance of course dental insurance yeah some form of life insurance if you have yeah if you have dependence and that doesn't just cover children that's also if you have a spouse and who would have to sell their would have to sell the house if you passed um you know that would be something to consider as well okay we got we got four we're looking for one more in this category but then i'd like to go back to what i said earlier is acquire a skill that is marketable so i mentioned surgery dentistry ultrasound earlier it doesn't have to be a medical or surgical skill it can also be a little bit more intangible Mm. you know if you're brilliant at client communication that is a rare quality and that's that's worth something if you're extremely good at social media and you can manage your practice a Facebook page or Instagram or whatever you can do to to help promote the practice, that is a marketable skill. I'm giving you that in the build wealth category, Phil. So you've only got four more to go there. So you want one more in the preserve wealth category? I want what? Yeah, one more in preserve or, or reduce debt. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, you just said it. So. Uh, do everything that you can not to go into debt. And so accidents happen, you know, layoffs happen that are unexpected, not as much in our profession, but in others. Mm-hmm. And so, but anything you can do is so we talked about emergency fund. And so that's, that's the, the best way not to go into debt is to have some sort of emergency fund set aside. But then also, again, going back to living within or below your means. And so if you're not always focused on what's the next thing, what's the next thing that I should be upgrading or what's the what's the next thing that needs to be done to, to make my kid more competitive and you know, things like that, then you're going to be less likely to go into debt. All right. You definitely got over the line there. 
And you may even may even have gone on to six there. All right, so so there's some solid strategies for dealing with debt and sort of not going backwards, as it were. So let's hit like so in terms of wealth building, it just feels like the other half of this equation. I know there's a bit of a fuzzy area between them. So basically, you're you've still got money, but one of the big areas that we don't understand, I, I think, is how how money can work for us and against us. So money money works against us in debt by having compound interest, you know, fighting us. And so what looks like small debt over years turns into big debt. What are the financial lessons or what is the most important thing that you have come to understand about the way money works that you didn't know when you graduated? Maybe that's the starter question for this. So if I can ask you both that and then we can we can build upon the remaining four wealth building activities people can undertake i think the biggest lesson is the sooner you start to invest easier and the faster you'll be able to retire and as painful as it sounds one year matters a lot and that goes exactly back to what you were saying about compound interest that's that's the good side of compound interest a single year can be worth a fortune so it's worth continuing to quote unquote live like a student if that's going to allow you to invest earlier and not upgrade, not fall into lifestyle creep, as Meredith said earlier. That's very much worth it. And it's hard because, you know, obviously there's a lot of psychology going into that. You know, we've lived like students for years, you know, at least eight years, depending on the country. 12 if, you, if you're a specialist. So you have a natural tendency to want to splurge and to finally have a life when all your friends who didn't do all, all um, who, who didn't follow the same path have a beautiful house and have two or three cars and have jewelry and have beautiful clothes and go to lavish locations for a vacation. So it's hard to resist. Yeah. Meredith? Yeah, and I mean, it really... I've been thinking very hard about whether there's something else, but I mean, that, that really is, I echo the same thing that Phil just said is that the earlier you start with investing, the better, and it's just incredibly important. And so I do think the focus going back to Phil's thoughts about building your skill set, I think that's something that if you focus on that as well, and and maybe you maybe you focus for a couple of years on one skill and you build it, and then you focus on a different skill the next couple of years, um, and have have a lot of tools in your box that you can use to help to build your career. I think that's uh, something that is also going to help you build wealth over time. That has always been my strategy get good at something that looks like there's a gap in the market and in the first instance the market was simply the practice I worked in and I could see nobody did dentistry very well and I could see a lot of animals needed their teeth doing and so it, it was really easy especially as a, a graduate to establish a beachhead that then became an area of expertise within the practice then suddenly people would send you cases and you know opportunities and confidence just grew from that moment so i think that's absolutely solid advice okay so we've 
we've checked a box on add value with new skills, get good at things, create value, and probably tag onto that, negotiate to realize the monetary reward of that value add. I think number two there is investing. Now that's a big scary topic for people and and heck, that's a <laughs> there's probably a year's worth of podcasts in there. What are wise ways to begin investing? And when I say wise, I mean ways that are your are less risky because risk is always the word that's associated with investments. Stocks can go up as well as down. What are maybe a couple of pitfalls to avoid and sensible ways to start to grow a, an, an education in investment? Meredith, you, you look like you got something to say there and then we'll come to Phil. Actually, I was pointing at Phil. Oh, you were pointing at Phil. You were waving the pen. Okay. Come on in, Phil. I think before starting, well, th- there's two things. If you're fortunate to have some kind of retirement plan at work, that's a pretty low way pretty low risk way to start investing so this is your 401k pension if you're in the uk superannuation if you're in australia right okay because things are usually pre-digested for you and all you got to do is choose where the money goes yeah if you want to do anything beyond that then you need to educate yourself and that's definitely it's not rocket science but you gotta you gotta learn. You know, there's countless books. Friends may or not, may or not be good. Um. <laughs> okay, so that is you know the worst financial advice I've ever had, and I've only done it once. Was a, a friend made a recommendation in a company, and and this, he was an accountant for the company, and I thought, well, if he's saying good things about the company, that's got to be a bet. Lost every penny, every penny. I didn't mean it in that sense. I mean, I meant finding a mentor who <laughs> would out of practice. Right, got it. So, so find somebody who's doing something well, which seems like is always a solid way to choose a mentor. People, are, so one of the most common questions I get asked, how do I choose a good mentor? Well, number one, find somebody who's really good at what it is you want to learn and ask them. So... In terms of, you mentioned a couple of books there, Phil. Are there any books you'd recommend on investing for people to start reading? Like what what ones helped you? Oh, there's a million, which makes it hard for me to remember them. There's uh, Personal Finance for Dummies. (laughs) Yep. And then The Competitor, The Idiot Guide to Personal Finance. I'm not quoting the exact title, but it's something like that. Yep. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I like that one. I mean, that was more more wealth than investing. Yeah, that is a fundamental book for anybody who wants to do something besides investing in the stock market. Okay, so which was a not really nice way of saying it was a rubbish answer to my own question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so add value, invest. Any other ways to build wealth? I suppose it's investing in different categories. Would that be an easier way to approach it? Well, I think the other thing is when we're talking about building wealth, I think at some point you have to step outside of just thinking about the money. And so if we go back to when we talked about negotiation, we talked about, okay, there are ways that you can negotiate that are not based in money as well. So you can negotiate your schedule, you can negotiate to have more more vacation time, you can 
negotiate to have your your schedule if you're a GP or or a specialist your schedule set up in a certain way that works better for you and you're going to be more successful you may or may not be more wealthy but you'll be more successful in that and if if being more successful in that way because you've you've set this up in in such a way that it works better for you then it's going to keep you in this profession longer and it's going to keep you working at a higher level and you're going to be happier. So I think I think we can step outside of money a little bit when we're talking about building wealth because it's it's not just about money, it's about being happy, being secure and being able to continue to function at a high level. I like that. I love that because ultimately there's a reason we're trying to build wealth. I don't know what that was. Alexa just decided to You should say me. it again. That is the creepiest thing ever. I have no idea what that was. So thank you, Alexa, for jumping in on the podcast. Ultimately, we're not, you know, there's a reason we're trying to build wealth and that is to live. And, you know, you don't need money to do everything to live a good life. You know, maybe you're, you need more money to, to what? To have, to take people and your kids on vacation to pay for them to go for a good school. Why? So they're happy. But there's a lot of ways to achieve that objective. And having, you know, if you can't afford, if, if you speak to your boss and they want to go say it raised and you can negotiate more time, well, that creates time. Time is wealth to an extent if you use it wisely, right? Like you can use that to invest or you can, or, or new skills or to spend time with your family that you're never going to get back again. You know, I think that's wonderful. Let me summarize. And I'm going to pull out a couple of points for the list of five, because actually I think there's been a wealth of lessons as we've been going through and, and having our conversation. So add value with new skills, negotiate so that you get the value out of that activity. That feels like two separate ones. Invest, learn communication skills so clients follow your recommendations and bill accurately for those things. And you'll generate more cash for your practice, which will allow you to negotiate a better position or you'll directly do well because of a pro-style setup. And remember, it's not all about the money. There's many ways to be wealthy. Money is a vehicle, not necessarily the end. That feels like a nice place to to wind down. Now, you guys are doing this financial summit, and we've you know we've talked about getting an education, and I'm so pleased that you you guys have have done this because I've been wa- watching and interested in both of your work for so long. So it's been really useful to. I know we've jumped around a little bit, but so much richness, so much wealth. Tell me about the financial summit. Actually, tell me, like, so you guys mentioned before, like, how did you guys get together in the, in the first instance? Like, tell me the primordial ooze that this, this partnership came from. And what are you trying to achieve with the financial, the VET financial summit? All right. So, Dave, you gave me some of the best advice ever, which is that I asked you about Uncharted. I said, what is, what is this conference? And should I go? And you said yes. And so I went to the Uncharted conference, which was started by our friend, uh, Dr. Andy Rourke. And so 
that's where Phil and I met and we had exchanged some emails beforehand and sort of accidentally found out that we're both interested in personal finance. And so then we met in person at the conference last April. And so we started talking about how can we help more colleagues? How can we how can we get how can we help colleagues to get more educated on both personal finance and practice finance? And there's really not a lot out there, especially for personal finance. There there's almost nothing out there to educate clients and or excuse me, educate our colleagues. And so what we've seen is that there's been a lot of pressure over the last few years with student debt being a, a bigger problem in the profession and with practice ownership somewhat changing. The landscape is changing out there. And there are people who want to be practice owners who have no idea where to start. And there are people out there who might want to own a practice, but they have no idea because they have student debt if it's even an option for them. And then even if you don't have those components, there are also people out there who are just because in vet school, we didn't learn about financial topics whatsoever in some cases or in a very limited aspect in other cases, there's a lot of confusion out there. And so we'd like to clear that up. And so Phil, I'm going to let you talk a little bit more. Right. So basically out of these early conversations, we decided to come up to start this crazy gigantic project called the Vet Financial Summit. So it's both a conference, which thanks to COVID is now a virtual conference at the end of September, the last weekend, 26 and 27, September of this year, 2020. And specifically because we'd like to help our colleagues with financial knowledge, we didn't want the knowledge to be dispensed over two days and imagine that all of their problems are going to be solved and then do it again the following year. We wanted to create a community around that to continue to help them and support them over the course of the the entire year. So that's what we have. We have an online community and we're going to host our first conference in September of 2020. And guys, the thing I noticed about the conference is it's priced quite ironically. I was thinking about the actual cost of the conference. I'm like, that is so cheap for like the given the value that you get back out of a financial education and i know it's one of those things it is hard to get vets to jump into rabbit holes that don't have rabbits in them (laughs) or some form of animal or clinical related thing but people need to understand that these skills like financial skills form the basis of your future happiness the basis of your you cannot develop a strong, healthy, professional skill set without having a solid foundation. Like you can't, you can, if you're worrying about money, if you're freaking out about that and you're one, you're, that's keeping you awake at night, you're not going to perform in the day. You're going to be tired. You're going to be stressed. You, you're not going to be as apt to learn. You're going to have a fear-based, you know, a, a scarce mindset. And so understanding, understanding these skills, how debt and wealth go together are just so, so important. So I'm super glad to see you guys teaming up. And uh, how lovely to hear that there was 
you know, a, a, a slight hand in it from having conversations, Meredith. That's that was as nice to hear. So we will link up in the show notes to the Vet Financial Summit. It's happening, as Phil said, at the end of September. The URL, the website is vetfinancialsummit.com. No weirdness in the spelling there, I think. Just Vet Financial Summit. And and hopefully this is a, a sort of gateway entry point into a, a deeper understanding for the profession of how money works and and i'm sure there's just going to be like so many lessons available for people in that community so um good on you both for doing it and so another side hustle is born there you go because <laughs> none of you were busy enough in the first instance <laughs> exactly but to your point financial concerns invariably rank at the very top of any study you know that professional associations have um, have launched it's one of the one or two top concerns among vet, among veterinarians year after year after year and certainly student debt is a big contributor to that but even for practice owners practice owners overall are concerned about their finances they're concerned about retirement they don't even think it's a it's a possibility mm. so that that's what we're trying to to help with is both on the investing side, on the personal side of things, and also the practice um, finance aspect, you know, how to run a tight ship, how to make it profitable, how to be able to afford toys and give raises and keep the team happy. So, you know, to do that, we have some, a number of amazing speakers, among which is this um, Scottish guy. What's his name again? Dave Nichol. I can't, I can't pronounce his name. You know, as vets, we like hearing things from other vets. Like we're so distrusting, or like you hear it from a financial advisor, like they're out to get my money. I don't like you don't, and and often that might be the case. But when you hear it from another vet who's walked there, there's a certain comfort level, and there's a there's a, a deeper trust. So thank you both for going on this journey and helping to educate us all. Um, Phil, is there any last messages you would like to leave us with for today? I think the key for financial happiness is exactly the same as in veterinary practice. Learn from a mentor. Learn from somebody who's, who's been there, who's done that, who has been successful, and who can save you years of headaches and heartache. I love it. And Meredith? Well, it's something that we've touched on throughout the episode, which is that personal finance is, is not rocket science. If you got into vet school and you went through vet school, you can learn personal finance and practice finance as well. So these topics, they, they may seem complicated at first, but it's something that with a mentor, with doing the work and getting yourself educated, reading the right things, talking with the right people, having people to help hold you accountable to your goals. And, and that's whether they're financial goals or career goals. It's something that can be done. All right. Well, thank you both for, for your time. I wish you well, both with, with the summit and also with the community you're building. And good luck. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank, thank you so much. 
So just me before you jump off. Thank you for listening to the episode and thank you to Meredith and Phil for their amazing knowledge and energy and bringing that to the podcast. If you're interested in this summit, whether it's before the event, you can still buy tickets. I'm sure the recordings will be available afterwards. Do yourself a favor and get a financial education. Please also check out today's show sponsor, Vetex. Thrive on vetexinternational.com forward slash thrive. And remember, these shows are free to you to listen to. It would mean the world to me for you to tell your friends about it. And if you're feeling really generous, leave me a review on iTunes. Until next time, from me, Dr. Dave Nichol, be safe, be well, and be happy.